0: Well, it is now time for us to open the Word of God together, and today we are going back to the Gospel of Luke. It has been four months since we were last in this book, and some of you may have even joined our fellowship since then and didn't know that we were preaching through the Gospel of Luke, but we had been doing that last fall and had ended in December. Uh, In January, we did a series on strengthening our core, looking at our core values, And then I went on break as my wife gave birth to our son, and uh, then this whole coronavirus thing hit, and so uh, we haven't been able to return to Luke, but we are going to do that today. We've entitled our series, In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, because Luke makes a point that Jesus came to bring salvation to all people, and it's a, uh, a wonderful truth for us to ...reflect upon and a truth that we'll see also in our passage this morning. And just to catch us up to speed, we, are, we stopped in the middle of chapter 2 of Luke. But in the opening chapters, in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2... Uh, ...Luke has done uh, tried to show how Jesus' arrival from heaven was special in every way. And it wasn't just that his birth was special, although it was... ...but there were so many events surrounding his birth that made uh, Jesus himself and his arrival special. Special in a way that showed that the child born in Bethlehem was the Son of God, the Messiah for Israel and for the world. And so all these, these, these events drove home the point, Luke's point, that Jesus of Nazareth was unlike anyone who ever had or would walk upon this earth. Jesus was in a class by himself and thus, he was to be listened to and to be followed. And that's going to continue in our text today. Now, there's so much that Joseph and Mary uh, will be, would be able to relay to their, to their child about the events surrounding his birth and all that took place even before he was born and before he was conceived. About angels showing up and all sorts of things but there was still more to happen. There was still more to take place in Jesus' infancy that his parents would have to relate to him. And we're going to see that in our passage together as particularly two special people are going to contribute to uh, something to this Christ child. And so we read of their contributions in our passage this morning in the Uh, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, and so I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to there, to Luke chapter 2, if you're not already there. And we're going to begin in verse 21. We're picking up right after the birth of Christ. Verse 20, the shepherds are leaving the manger scene and telling everyone of the birth of Christ, and we're going to pick up in verse 21. So this is uh, right after Jesus has been born, and we're going to read this morning from Chapter 2, verse 21 through, all the way through verse 40. Text says, starting in verse 21, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now we see in this passage, Mary and Joseph perform rituals that are required by law. And as they're coming to the temple to do that, they are intercepted by two dear saints who rejoice at the sight of the Christ child. And we, along with Mary and Joseph, are swept up into their joy as they celebrate the gift of God's Son. And so as Simeon and Anna declare their joy we are going to see more aspects of what this child was sent to do. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to see three early indicators of Jesus's person and work. And as we do that, as we see these early indicators of what Jesus came to do, my prayer is that we would rejoice in Jesus as Simeon and Anna did. And folks, this is what we need. We need to set our gaze upon Jesus this morning. We need to be reminded in the midst of all that's going on in this world and in our lives that Jesus is the one that brings us our great joy. Jesus is the one that we should center our hope on, center our joy on, and we can rejoice even in difficult times. So let's, let's try to be swept up into the joy of Simeon and Anna this morning as we look at these three early indicators of Jesus' life and work. The first early indicator that we get from this passage about what Jesus was about and what he came to do is that number 1 he was a man under the law. He was a man under the law. Now, this might not seem like a significant point, but I hope to prove that otherwise as we go through this. Now, <clears throat> this this point that he was a man under the law, we're going to see in verses 21 through 24, as well as through in verses 39 and 40. So the The first verses of our passage, the last verses of our passage, and I'll explain why as we go through it. In these verses, we see some ordinary events in the life of a newborn Jewish boy in the first century. But we also see a godly couple obeying the law. We see Mary and Joseph doing exactly as they were told, doing exactly as the law prescribes. In fact, the law is mentioned five times in this passage. And so the law of the Lord, or it's it's called the law of Moses, or just the law, that this is a significant theme for Luke in this passage, that he wants to get across the point that these things were done according to the law. And Mary and Joseph are not super saints. They uh, did not do anything that was above or beyond, and they... Uh, their obedience that we see in this passage is simply reason to give thanks to God and because it is by his grace that they were obedient to these things. So, he was a man, Jesus was a man under the law and we see that first in that he was circumcised. Look at verse 21. At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. Now, this was according to the law, this was uh, God first gave this to Abraham back in Genesis 17, that all sons and descendants of Abraham were to be circumcised on the eighth day. This was reiterated in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. And so uh, faithful Israelites circumcised their sons on the eighth day. Jesus was no different. And so here he is identifying with the covenant people of God. He is one of them. He's now connected to the Abrahamic covenant, which is now being remembered as Mary, in in chapter 1, verses 54 and 55, uh, talks about how the Abrahamic covenant, the promises given to Abraham are being remembered now, and Jesus is stepping in line with that. And so his circumcision is important to show that he is under the law. Secondly, he was named. Not so much that he was under the law, but we see this point here that at, at his circumcision, verse 21, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. His name means Yahweh is salvation, Yahweh's salvation. He's, Jesus' name himself shows what his mission was, that he had come to save. And he, if you remember, the angel had spoken to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and said that his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It was baked into his name. Both Mary and Joseph had heard from the angel uh, the name that they were to give this child. And no doubt they had been pondering this and waiting for it. And here on the eighth day, the day of his the circumcision, they give him his name. So we see that he's circumcised. We see that he's named. Thirdly, we see that he's presented to the Lord. He's presented to the Lord. And we see this in verses 22-24, through 24, also in verse 39 as a wrap-up verse. Now, when we hit verse 22, it says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, this is uh, 40 days after his birth. This is what the law required in uh, Leviticus chapter 12, that the, the mother be purified by a sacrifice after she's given birth. She's ceremonially unclean after giving birth. And so, 40 days after the birth of a son, they're coming for her to be purified. They're also uh, presenting the firstborn child to the Lord. It was required as outlined in Exodus 13 that the firstborn uh, of every family was to be presented to the Lord and to be redeemed uh, in that the Lord says that every uh, person and really even every animal that was to open the womb was holy to the Lord and that's Uh, a phrase that that Luke records for us. He says, verse 23, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So there's two events going on here. There's the presentation of the child and the redemption of the firstborn, and there's also then the purification of the mother after giving birth. The purification of the mother required a sacrifice, and the law uh, asked for a lamb and either a turtle dove or a pigeon uh, but if the the couple could not afford that they could just give two birds, two turtle doves or two pigeons and that's what we see the couple doing here. Verse 24 says to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so Mary and Joseph were uh, in the poorer class of society. It doesn't mean that they were absolutely destitute. Joseph, as we know, was a carpenter or a stone worker. He had an occupation to earn a living, but uh, definitely was not among the wealthy. Now Luke quotes from two passages here in these, these couple of verses to highlight the fact that what, what took place was strictly according to the Mosaic law. Mary and Joseph fulfilled what the law required of them. They were being obedient. And he makes Luke makes this specific, uh, this specific point again at the end of our passage. And so look in verse 39, that, that they did this according to the, the law of the Lord. It says, verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So we see Luke's point. They went to the temple to do this according to the law and... They're intercepted by some people, some amazing things happens that, w- happens that we'll look at, but then he wraps up to make sure that the point goes home, that they did exactly as the law required. Now, I, I want to also note, since we're in verse 39, that the text says that after all of this presentation at the temple, that they went back to Nazareth. The child was born in Bethlehem, after uh, that time uh, of 40 days, they then went up to Jerusalem, a a four-mile uh, journey up to Jerusalem to present, be presented at the temple. And then Luke simply says that they went to Nazareth. Now, if we put the Gospels together, Matthew and Luke, we know that they probably went back to Bethlehem for a time. And then there was the whole visit of the Magi. And then there was the warning of the angel that they need to flee to Egypt. Then they came back to Israel, and then they went to Nazareth. Now, Luke uh, doesn't record all that because it doesn't fit with... Uh, his purpose for what he was doing in writing his gospel. But uh, eventually they went, made it back to Nazareth, and that's what Luke records. The fourth point that we are seeing here that, that Jesus was a man under the law is, is that he grew strong in the Lord. We see in verse 40. He grew strong in the Lord. Verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him again we're saying that Jesus was a man under the law he was born into a devout jewish family he grew here i believe verse 40 is simply saying that he grew as a devout jewish boy that he followed the law and he did it happily he he was filled with wisdom Wisdom, the knowledge of God and his word and knowing how to apply that to life. He soaked up God's word and he sought to, to bring it to bear into life. And it says the favor of God was upon him. And so Jesus really stepped into the stream that his parents had already begun of following the law and following the Lord. It says he grew physically. He, he did, as the, and the child grew and became strong we can't gloss over that. We need to realize that Jesus w- grew as a normal boy. He was a human boy. And so he, he uh, had to learn to walk and he had to uh, take in food. And, and he wasn't some super strong little infant. Uh, he was just a normal boy and he grew strong in that. Uh, he came in the flesh and he was a normal human in that way. But we see he also experienced the special favor of God. The favor of God was upon him. Similar words that were said to his mother before he was conceived in Luke 1, 28. So what does all this mean that we're, that we're putting together here under this first point that he was a man under the law? Well, What we see is that in these events we, we see that these things are absolutely crucial to Jesus' life and work. In order for Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior of his people, he needed to identify with them. In order to redeem those who were under the law, he himself needed to be under the law. And this is the point that Paul makes in Galatians chapter 4. And I invite you to turn over there, Galatians chapter 4, and we'll see these verses that are important to remember, particularly as Gentiles who don't see ourselves, who are not under the Mosaic law, we were not born under that in, uh, in terms of our society, but we uh, we need to remember that we are under the law and under the curse of the law. And so Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And so it's absolutely crucial that Jesus be a man under the law so that he can redeem all those who were under the curse of the law that, we, that he talks about in uh, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that we're all under the curse. So this is important for Jesus' life and mission, that he was under the law even from the beginning of his life. One scholar put it this way, particularly relating to Jesus' circumcision. You go, how does Jesus' circumcision play into the significance of who he is and what he came on earth to do? Listen to this. He says, Jesus' circumcision is foundational to the most extraordinary event in history, the sacrifice on the cross. An uncircumcised Messiah would, by definition, be separated from his people and, by that token, no Messiah at all. Let me read that last phrase again. An uncircumcised Messiah would by definition be separated from his people and by that token, no Messiah at all. Without the circumcision of Jesus, he's no Messiah. And we see Luke recording for us back in Luke 2 that Jesus fulfilled this. And so Jesus, for his life and for his work, needed to fulfill the law. And he did that throughout his entire life. But it begins here even now. He, he fulfills the law even as a passive infant, as a, as a small little baby in his parents' arms. He is able to, to be fulfilling the law. And he's able to do that because his parents are righteous and devout people. They, they began this trajectory for him of obeying the law. And I think there's a principle here for us to draw out for us today. And that is that parents set the spiritual trajectory of their parents. There is a stream that children are born into in which they uh, are flowing in a certain spiritual direction. Either they're, they're flowing in, in, in faithfulness to God or they're flowing maybe in spiritual laziness. Or maybe they're, they're floating in, in flat out unbelief. But as a child is born into a family, he's he's into a spiritual stream and is flowing that direction. Now, don't get me wrong. Every child needs to make a a commitment for Christ personally. Everyone will be judged for their own sins and will have to stand accountable before the Lord. But children can be helped or hindered based upon the example, the, the choices of the parents. So parents, you we have a significant responsibility to, to create a raging river flowing towards obedience to the Lord and joy and happiness and dependence upon the Lord. That we want to show our children what faith in Jesus looks like. That we are dependent upon God, that we are obedient to His word, and we do it in dependence upon Him, recognizing that we have no righteousness of our own, that we're completely dependent on the Lord. Jesus' parents set that spiritual trajectory for him. We can set that for our children as well by God's grace. And so what we see in this, first in this passage is that Jesus was a man under the law. And it was because he was born of the law that he can redeem us who were under the curse of the law. And because he was under the law, he could be our savior. So... We first celebrate Jesus because he was born of the law and could be our Messiah. Secondly, the second thing we see in this passage is that he would save Israel and the nations. The second early indicator of his life and work here, even as he's an infant here, is that he would save Israel and the nations. And this is going to cover the bulk of the verses for us this morning. From verse 25 to 32, and then also 36 through 38. And it's here in this passage that we're going to meet two special people, Simeon and Anna. And it's in their responses to the Christ child that we're going to see this nature of the salvation that Jesus will bring. Now, Simeon and Anna, two people that we only know about because of this passage here. We know nothing else about them. They're not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Anna, verse 36 says that she is a prophetess and she's a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, one of the ten northern tribes. We also learn in uh, that she is advanced in years, that she is uh, had, is now a widow and she's 84 years old. In contrast, we don't know Simeon's age, we don't know his ancestry, and we don't know his role or occupation. We know that Anna was a prophetess, we don't know anything about Simeon, but because of the words that he speaks and he gives some prophecy about the Christ child, that it shows him to be some prophet of some sort, whether this is the only prophecy he ever gave or whether he was a prophet giving uh, other words, we don't know. He's probably advanced in years, probably old like Anna, but the text doesn't say that, we deduce that because in verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He's saying, you can let me die. You can let me pass from this earth. And that seems to be the declaration of a man who's lived a full life. And and yet, we don't know if that's the case. He could be middle-aged or young. We don't know. We know Anna was married. She's now a widow. But we don't know anything about Simeon's marital status or his family. But even though there are differences between the two, there are some similarities as well. They are both said to be model saints. They are uh, those that were among the faithful, among those who followed God faithfully during this time. Look in verse 25 and see what it says about Simeon. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was righteous and devout. Righteous simply meaning that he was godly in his his interactions with other people. And devout in that he was was, uh, fervent in his relationship with God. He was a godly man all the way around. And he seems to have a special relationship with the Spirit. This text highlights how the Holy Spirit was upon him... And then verse 26 talks about how the Holy Spirit had revealed something to him. And then 27, he came into the temple in the Spirit. So there's a clear emphasis by Luke uh, that this man had a special relationship with the Spirit. Now as we look at Anna uh, in verse 37, we see that it says that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. This was a woman who prayed. This is a woman who worshiped, and she's, it says that she does not depart from the temple. Now, we don't know if that means that she actually lived and slept and ate in the temple and never actually exited the doors of the temple. Uh, more likely, it was that she was simply a daily visitor, and, and, and so it could be said that she lived at the temple. She was always there every day worshiping. With seemingly no family obligations, she devoted her time to worship, prayer, and fasting. Now, these two faithful people also shared two experiences. One is that they were both waiting for something. And secondly, is that they both saw their waiting uh, fulfilled. First is that they were waiting for something. They were waiting particularly for Israel's Messiah to bring salvation to the nation. Look at what it says in verse 25 for Simeon. It says that he was righteous and devout, waiting for... For the consolation of Israel. And then verse 38 says that Anna was among a group of people who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we have waiting for the consolation of Israel, we have waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And these are essentially parallel statements. They're describing the hope and the expectation of the faithful believers in Israel. Those Believers who had been reading their Bible and studying what the prophets had said had a sense of waiting that this Messiah was going to come. He could come any day and they were praying for that, asking that God would send the Messiah. They knew it was coming. Now the consolation of Israel that it says that Simeon was waiting for is an idea that's pulled from the prophet Isaiah. And Throughout that book, the prophet tells the nation that they needed to wait for uh, Yahweh and for his Messiah. And that salvation and that comfort and peace would come through Yahweh's servant, through the servant of the Lord. And we we see that throughout the book of Isaiah, but particularly in the latter part of it. Isaiah 40-66 through is the part of Isaiah that describes this future salvation of the nation. Listen to some of the verses, uh, the passages in Isaiah that describe this comfort, this consolation that God promises. Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Say, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Or Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Or Isaiah 51, verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Simeon was waiting for this time when comfort will be said to the people of God, when the wilderness will be made like Eden and joy and gladness will be found in her. And all of this would come through the servant of the Lord, who we know is Jesus. So it was natural for Simeon to be looking for the consolation and and comfort promised in the Bible. On top of this, in verse 26, it says that the Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he would see the Lord's Christ. So not only was he reading his Bible and knowing that he could expect to see the Messiah, and he was waiting for that, but he had a special revelation from the Spirit to know that that he would not die until he would see the Messiah. Now, I don't know if he shared that truth with anybody. I would think that if the Spirit revealed that to me, that if I was in Israel at this time, I would want to be telling people and say, listen, folks, I'm not going to die until I see the Messiah, which means the Messiah is coming in our lifetime. But we, uh, we don't know if he told anybody. He may have just kept it to himself and privately prayed and waited. But he was waiting with eager expectation, knowing that at some point he would see the Messiah. What joy must have filled his heart? Now, Anna, too, was waiting for something. She's a part of this group of people uh, that were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the capital city, therefore represented the entire nation. Much like today we speak of Washington, DC. representing the United States, or London representing Great Britain. She's looking, for the redemption of Israel, the redemption of the nation. This is similar to Joseph of Arimathea, the man who would put Jesus in a tomb. It says in Luke 23 that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Or the disciples on the road to Emmaus in in Luke 24, it says that they had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel. They all knew that this was going to happen through the Messiah. And when Jesus presented himself as such, they were waiting for that. And so all this waiting focused on the Redeemer, focused on the time of blessing that that Redeemer would bring. But not only did both these saints, not only were they both waiting for something, really waiting for the same thing, but they both saw their waiting fulfilled. Now Joseph and Mary were bringing the child into the temple. They were were, uh, ready to fulfill the law as they had come there to do. When they were... um, intercepted first by Simeon verse 27 says that Simeon came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law he took him up in his arms so somehow the spirit had revealed to Simeon to go into the temple and once he was there to identify who was the parents and who was the child of this messiah and verse 28 says he walks up to them, and he picks up the child. Now, I don't know if he said anything before he picked up the child, but I'd have to say that if I were I were Joseph and were there with my wife Mary, and and some stranger in the temple came and picked up my child, I would be a little concerned. But then again, we've got to remember that Joseph and Mary have seen a lot of strange things. They've, they've seen a lot of strange people say some things about their child, including shepherds showing up in, uh, around the manger. So uh, no doubt they wouldn't have been surprised, and they uh, were just about to see, again, God showing how special this child was. And with this, Simeon launches into a prophecy concerning this Christ child. What we have recorded for us in verses 29 to 32. In this prophecy, we, it's composed of three couplets. Couplets simply meaning uh, a composition of two lines. And so there's there's three sets of two lines in this prophecy. And it's here that we get some specific. Uh, declaration about who Jesus is, about what he came to do, and particularly in the point that we're talking about here, just just to remind you, is that he would save Israel and the nations. And here we see that particularly expressed. Now the first set of two lines is in verse 29. And this couplet centers on thanksgiving to the Lord for fulfilling his promise to Simeon. It's a, it's a, it's a couplet of, of personal gratitude to the Lord. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. This praise is offered to the Lord or master. It, it trans, the word Lord translates the, the Greek word not kurios as is typical, but is despotase. From which we get the word despot. And it communicates Simeon's recognition of God's ultimate sovereignty. God is the one in charge, and he has total sovereign control. He calls him the despotes, the Lord, the master. But notice also what he calls himself. He says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon is, calls himself a slave, a doulos. He is completely surrendered. He is is at the the lowest uh, point of subjugation. He is a slave, and the Lord is the highest point of authority. He is the master. And Simeon is happily in that position. But notice he says, Now, he begins his phrase, Lord, now you are letting. That now is significant. He's saying, I have now everything can change. Now I can die. He's saying, letting your servant depart in peace is a euphemism for, for passing away, for, for departing from this world. But now he can do that. Why? Why is now significant? Because God has fulfilled his word. According to your word. God promised it and God fulfilled it. And friends, God always Fulfills his promises. God always makes good on his word. Simeon is yet another example of that. Simeon's praise is fueled by the fact that God fulfilled his word. God promised and God answered. It came to pass. So, this first part of the prophecy, Simeon's rejoicing in what God has done for him. The second couplet, verses 30 and 31, is this, this couplet centers on Simeon's thanksgiving for the salvation that has come. He's now going to branch out out of his own experience and talk about the salvation that's come. He says, verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. He's happy to leave this world because his eyes have seen the salvation of God. And what is that salvation? Well, it's the child. It's Jesus, the infant. Jesus, his name meaning salvation, but more than that, he's the child who would bring salvation to the nation. And so Simeon can say, I have seen your salvation. Jesus personifies and embodies God's salvation. He is God's salvation in bodily form. Now, Simeon also praises God, verse 31, because God has prepared this salvation. This salvation did not show up by accident. This this came about because God prepared it. He planned it in his mind in eternity past, and he brought it about, and he prepared it. In fact, our whole Old Testament is showing his preparation for this Messiah to bring it about. And here in the Gospels, we see Jesus arrive. But Simeon is praising God and recognizing that God is the one who has prepared it. He's orchestrated the events of Israel's history to bring about this salvation in his day. And it it wasn't a hidden preparation. Simeon says, you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. That it's before the nations, it's before the watching world that this has come about. Now... The third and final couplet in verse 32 centers on Simeon's thanksgiving for the universal implications of salvation. He mentions that he's seen God's salvation here in bodily form. But now he's going to talk about the the universal implications of this salvation. Now look in verse 32. He says that this salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles And for glory to your people Israel. It's light, light that shines to both Gentiles and Jews. It shines to to the nations and to Israel. This light then is further described as revelation for Gentiles and glory for for the people Israel. So, light is a term that covers both all peoples, but then specifically, revelation for Gentiles and glory for Israel. As we already saw in chapter 1, Zechariah described the arrival of Jesus as sunrise—that is, that is a sunrise that is coming, that is bringing light to the people who sit in darkness. So this correlation with the coming of Jesus as light has already been seen in our text. But Simeon continues to describe it that way. And here really is the first declaration here in verse 32 that the salvation that comes through Jesus was intended not just for Israel but also for the nations, also for Gentiles. All the that we've seen before this have been Mary's uh, celebration of what God has done for her, Zachariah's celebration of what he's going to do through his son John and, and through Jesus, and the the angels' declaration and the shepherds' celebration, all these things were very Israel-centric. They were looking at what God was doing for his people, Israel. And that is certainly the case, as we're going to see. But here is a, uh, the first indication that that light is going to spill beyond the borders of Israel. It's going to the nations. And remember that this was God's plan all along. In the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis chapter 12, God promises us to bless Abraham... But it is through that blessing to Abraham that blessing was also going to flow to the entire world. That through Abraham and through his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so how are all those families going to be blessed through Abraham? Well, it comes through Abraham's descendant, the Messiah. And there's many passages that make this explicit, that through Israel, the nations would be blessed. Isaiah 49, verse 6, Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3 in particular. And so Jesus, as light, brings salvation to all mankind, illuminating them in God's way. Jesus will be the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. But He's the light of the world that will shine into all the dark reaches of the world. But even though salvation goes to the Gentiles, there's a special relationship with Israel. It says that this light is for glory to your people Israel. It's light for it's or it's glory for the people Israel. Glory is is, is showing this special uh, relationship. There's this light has a certain weight to it that is unique to Israel. They have they play a special role in God's plan. And the salvation will be, this salvation will be glory to Israel. Simeon's seen that through Jesus, Israel will be saved and Israel will be vindicated. They will finally be victorious. They will finally be in that place of victory. And Simeon rejoices in this. But Simeon's not the only one who rejoices in the Christ child. As we said, Anna and Simeon both are waiting for the same thing and they both see their waiting fulfilled. We've seen Simeon's waiting fulfilled here in these verses, but let's see Anna's waiting fulfilled in verse 38. It says that she, coming up at the very hour, began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know if she overheard Simeon's prophecy, if she was standing there while Simeon was speaking and was able to see all that transpired with that couple, or if she simply came up, saw the child, and knew who it was. I, I, I tend to think that she overheard Simeon, so she knew that this was the Messiah. She, it was indicated to her. And she sees it, and then she goes off. She goes off giving thanks to God and speaking to, to others around her, evangelizing about the fact that the good news that this, this Messiah has come. And so she just begins celebrating. Now, what does all this mean? The this, this second indicator, early indicator, of Jesus' life and mission that he would save Israel and the nations. What does that mean for us? What does all that we see here about Simeon and Anna mean for us? Well, I think there's three points of significance here that rise to the surface. The first is to remember that Israel holds a special place in God's salvation plan. Even though right now Israel is in rebellion and a partial hardening has come upon her, there will come a day when she will look upon Jesus. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will be a nation who repents of her sin and recognizes Jesus as her Messiah. And we know from the prophecies found in the Bible that Israel holds a special place in God's plan in the end times. And we can't forget that. Secondly, we can see from these verses that Jesus is God's salvation for us. He is a light for revelation to you and to me. He is the one who brings salvation. We are Gentiles. We need the living word of God to reveal the Father to us, John 1.18. And we can find salvation only in Him. And therefore, we... Uh, the third point of significance for us is that we need to follow Simeon and Anna's example and rejoice in the provision of salvation that comes through Jesus. We need to look upon that child and that we see in these verses and look upon the man that we read throughout the Gospels and rejoice that God has sent his salvation. We must see our souls exult in the grace of God. We, we need to see Jesus for all that he is and then celebrate and rest upon that knowledge knowing that he is the glorious son of God who brings salvation to us. So we've seen so far this morning the two early indicators of Jesus' life and work is that one, he was born under the law and secondly, he, he would save Israel and the nations. And the third and final indicator that we find in this passage is that he would not be accepted by everyone. Jesus would not be accepted by everyone. And we see this in verses 33 and 35, and this will finish out our time this morning. Verse 33, after Simeon's given his prophecy, it says, And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. He's, Simeon's spoken these great things about Jesus, and Joseph and Mary are amazed. They're marveling. They're marveling that Jesus was, their, their child was, was not, did not just have national significance, but had global significance. And they marveled at this. Now it calls Joseph his father. We know that Joseph was not his biological father, but merely is an indication of the family that they were, and it would be perceived as in that time. But Simeon isn't done. The, 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 the parents marvel at what's been said, but Simeon has more to say. And particularly, he points his comments to Mary, Jesus' mother. It says in verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed. This child is appointed. Now, first he says, Behold. It's meant to grab Mary's attention, and it should grab our attention as well. There's something significant that he wants to get across. But then he says that this child is appointed. And he makes clear again that Jesus' destiny is set in place by God. It's not happenstance. It's not simply by chance. It is appointed. But what is it that Jesus was appointed to do and to be? First, it says, look at it, verse 33, or sorry, verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The fall and rising of many in Israel. And I believe this indicates a key feature for the Israelites in the first century and for us today of what Jesus means to the nation and Jesus means to us. You see, Jesus is either the stone which unbelievers will trip and fall over, or he's the cornerstone of the believer's faith. In other words, he is the great divider. He's the watershed of humanity. When you come to Jesus, you can only go one of two ways. There's either rising or there's falling. There's no middle ground. Jesus' ministry would divide the nation into two groups. Those who fall and those who rise. There will be those who believe and receive Jesus and there will be those who disbelieve and put Jesus on a cross. Those who reject Jesus are headed for a damning fall and those who believe in him are headed for a vindication and a future resurrection, a fall and a rise. The second thing he's appointed For is, um, look at it in verse 34, the end, and for a sign that is opposed. For a sign that is opposed. Jesus was to be a sign, a sign that pointed to God the Father, pointed to the living God. But he would be a sign that would be spoken against, a sign that would would be opposed. People in this nation would would contend with Jesus, would not accept everything that that he said. They'll oppose his life, they'll oppose his ministry, they'll oppose his very person. And Simeon is warning Mary that Jesus would receive stiff competition, or stiff opposition, rather. Simeon knows that Jesus is God's hope for Israel. And that although that's the case, not everyone would positively respond to Jesus. And in fact, this is Luke's first indication in the narrative that all will not go smoothly for Jesus. Up to this point, there's only been unbridled celebration for the arrival of this child. But here in verse 34 and 35 is the first indication that all will not go smoothly, that there will be those in the nation that will oppose him. And then as Simeon turns his comments to Mary here in verse thirty five he tells Mary that Jesus' life and ministry will bring great pain to her now these comments seem best to be a parenthesis uh, uh, which is why most if not all Bible translations put them in parentheses in that he's uh, going to pick up his flow of thought at the end of the verse, but here he he kind of pulls aside and says something directly to Mary he says a, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, also. Pierce a sword will pierce through your own soul, also. Simeon uses graphic terminology to describe this future pain. He, he uses the, the term for sword here is not a little dagger, uh, but is a, a large broadsword, two-edged broadsword, and it says that that sword would pierce her soul. This child in her arms would bring extreme emotional pain to his mother. Now we don't know all that's included in that. Certainly the the death of her son upon the cross would be uh, the penultimate pain that she would receive. But I think even leading up to that, this sense that this child is not like any other son and is is setting off to do his ministry in a way that is unique and and. Uh, will be pulling away from Mary that would be difficult to endure. In fact, the, the next uh, passage in this text in Luke 2 is the story of Jesus at age 12 being left in the temple. And you can, ex- you can experience some, or sense some frustration in the text as Mary and Joseph are looking for Jesus and they find him in the temple and they're like, what are you doing? And they realize that Jesus has a different mission and which means he's a different kind of son and that's difficult to swallow. But Simeon brings his predictive statement here to a close by saying, look at it in the end of verse 35. Jesus is going to be appointed for these things so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here we see that the purpose of Jesus having a ministry that divides is so that the hearts, the thoughts of the hearts might be made manifest. He's going to reveal hearts in the nation." And we know that the thoughts of the hearts used in the book of Luke is for uh, primarily hostile thoughts. Chapter 5 verse 22, chapter 6 verse 8, chapter 20 verse 14, a couple examples. that The thoughts of the hearts is used in the book of Luke to describe uh, uh, hostile thoughts, not friendly thoughts. And so here's the point. Jesus' ministry shows where hearts really are before God. Jesus' ministry shows where hearts really are before God. Jesus will expose those who do not believe. He's the litmus test for the nation. Again, He's the watershed. Either they will show to be righteous and devout and believe in Him, or they will show to be wicked in heart. The thoughts of their hearts will be revealed and show that they are headed for a damning fall. And folks, this is true for people ever since. The great question for anyone's life is what do you do with Jesus? Because you come to Jesus and you you see him for who he is and how he's revealed in the Bible, and either you believe him or you don't. Either you trust him or you don't. There's no middle ground, there's no way to think that he's just a nice guy or a good teacher. He's either the Son of God who is demanding and deserving of your worship and for you to bow your knee in submission to the sovereign Lord of the universe. Or you reject Him and say, I don't want you as Lord. I'm going to be Lord. And you go your own way. And the results are the same as they were in the first century. Either uh, for a rising one day or for a stumbling in which you fall and, and, and fall eternally. There must be true acceptance of Jesus for there to be true salvation. We must know all of who Jesus is. We must accept him for all he is. We can't just hear that Jesus is a nice guy or or hear that he he has some good teachings and say that, well, oh yeah, I'll be a Christian. No, we need to know all that he is, that he calls us to come and die, to to lay down our lives, to, to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow after him. And by... Confessing Jesus on his terms, to accept him for as the scriptures reveal him to be, then we can experience his salvation. Friends, it's really simple. We need to come to the cross, we need to come to Jesus, and we need to die. We need to lay ourselves down. When I came to Jesus, Micah died. It is no longer my agenda. It is no longer my life. I am now united to Jesus, and I have been buried with him, and I have been raised with him to newness of life, and now I have new life in Jesus. My life is defined by Christ. He is my life, and when He, my life appears, I will be with him in glory. You see, we confess Jesus with centuries of Christians who came before us. We confess the Savior, the one who lived and died for us. I'm reminded of the truth of the Apostles' Creed, truths about Jesus that have been confessed for Christians since the very earliest centuries of the church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. You see, faith in Christ is something that we must renew every day. It's not about some past decision. It's not about something that we once believed. It's about something that we need to believe today. And the author of Hebrews makes it clear that there's a danger for unbelief to rise up in our hearts and that we as a church play a role in each other's lives to encourage one another and to exhort one another that we might continue in this faith, continue in believing in Jesus, that we might receive this salvation. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews three twelve and 13, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the most important question for you today is what do you do with Jesus? Do you bow to him as Lord or do you simply think he's a good teacher or a nice guy? We must submit your heart in your life to him. You must see your, your heart submit to him. He sees you now. He knows the thoughts of your hearts. And one day those will be revealed before the judgment seat. All of us must give an account before Jesus Christ. But see, the good news of this passage here this morning is that there is salvation for every one of us. It is offered to us all. There is light that is shown into this world through Jesus. And it's a light that shines uh, to each one of us. Praise God, we live in a land, we live in a time, we live in a place, and you're able to today hear of this light, hear of this salvation. We're able to hear of the salvation of God. This is God's good providence to you, that you would hear of this salvation. May it it cause you to rejoice in Jesus, to celebrate Him, to, to delight in the fact that God has given His Son, so that you might be saved from your sin. You might be saved from the damning hell that you deserve. You see, when we understand all that Jesus is and all that He has done for us, it causes our hearts to rejoice. It causes us to join Simeon and Anna and truly celebrate Jesus, Heaven's gift to us to bring light into our darkness. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you indeed have sent your Son to shine the light into our darkness. Without Jesus, we truly do sit in darkness, Father. And we thank you that you have been so gracious and so merciful to us. That you fulfilled your promises given throughout the Old Testament. And you sent your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who are under the law. May you help us to rejoice and celebrate Jesus even more today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And God bless you this week, beloved, as you continue to faithfully follow Jesus in these days.